We are in the book of Romans. So far, if you've endured with us the last three weeks, you've come to the conclusion that yes, I am a sinner. And there's nothing that I can do to, to save myself. The Apostle Paul has gone to great length in writing this letter to the Romans. He's taken all the way from Romans chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through to Romans chapter 3, verse 20. He's addressed different groups of people. He's addressed the Jews. He's addressed the self-righteous person. He's addressed the person who would deny that there was an existence of a God. And he's gone and he's shown, he's proven it basically at the very end of chapter 3, down around verse 20, around starting in verse 9, he talked about the Bible says. And he's, he, he, in other words, he proved that all of mankind before God is a sinner first through through sheer logic through creation through even through a little bit of philosophy in there and then as he comes and he begins to wind down the argument he tells us the bible says and the bible points out that there are none, none righteous no not one so i want you to imagine with me this morning that you're sitting in the doctor's office and you know that you get that call from the doctor and he says i need to see you and you know that it's bad news because he brings you into the office and not the examining room and he sits down at his desk and he's he's got some bad news for you and he says i've conducted all the tests I've done the blood work, I've done the CAT scan, I've done the MRI, I've done all of the things that I need to do, and unfortunately the tests haven't turned out very good for you. As you stand before, and we'll just say Dr. Paul because he's the one writing this letter, as you stand before Dr. Paul, the prognosis uh, is that you are completely eaten up in your body with the cancer of sin. You're completely eaten up. You, you, you've got it. You, there's nothing you can do about it. It's too late. You can't get rid of it. And you wonder, well, how did this happen? How did I, how did I get in this condition? What, what, how, what can I do? How did it happen? And, you know, maybe you never believed in God. And you said, well, I, I don't believe in God. And Paul says, well, I, I addressed that back in Romans chapter 1. God is visible in his creation. God created a knowledge of him even within your very spirit when you were created. And you might say, well, I, I was a moral man or a moral woman. I, I did more good than I did bad. And, you know, Paul would say, all right, then I'm going to judge you by the very standard that you held up to everybody else. So for the way that you judged everybody else, that standard will be then be reflected back on you and you sink in your seat and you go, oh, it's getting worse. Well, I was a religious man or a religious woman. How could that happen? I went to church. I joined the church. I, had a, I was a member of the church. I, I did what I was supposed to do. I, I prayed. I, I even gave money to the church. And Paul would say, it's not about the law. It's not about what you're doing. The law can't save you. The, law, the, the, the way that you acted can't save you. And you must look and you'd say, Paul, is there something that I can do? Paul, there's got to be something I can do. I can't continue in this condition. Is there something I can do? And I want you to look at verse 20 of chapter 3. The Apostle Paul would say, Therefore, by the deeds of the flesh, or by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Paul says, I'm sorry, but there's nothing that you can do. There's no pill that you can take. Your condition is terminal. It's out of your hands. You cannot be justified because of this condition of sin in your life. You cannot be justified before the Lord. Wait a minute, Rob. What does the word justified mean? Let's get some clarity here. Justified. Justified. What does it mean? It means this. It means to be declared righteous. It means to be set right. To clear someone of their sin or of their transgressions. So because I have this sin and because you have this sin in our life, there's nothing that we can do in our own self that would make us justified. And I'm going to tell you how to remember it very easily. Justified means this. It means just if I'd never sinned. Just if I'd never sinned. That's how I remember it. Justified doesn't mean that your sin is there and God's not looking upon it. He means, it means that you come to a condition, to a place where you before the Lord are just as if you had never sinned. I can't be justified in my own. It's bad news. 
And after bringing us to this place of despair, we acknowledge what Paul has set out to tell us. We understand that there is none righteous, no, not one, that he told us in chapter 3, verse 10. We understand in chapter 3, verse 19, he says, all the world is guilty before God. We understand again, he says, your good deeds do not justify you in the sight of God. Although the law and the rules that we followed, although, the, although they show the righteousness of God, by God's just and righteous judgment, the law, the rules that you live by cannot save you. I don't know about you, but I'm glad that's not where the letter to the Romans ended. Because if it had ended there, we'd all be in big trouble, wouldn't we? We'd all be stuck. We'd be in big, big trouble. But then Paul, continuing on in verse 21, begins to pen some of the most profound, some of the most beautiful words in the New Testament. He says, but now, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as the propitiation by his blood, through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, we're going to spend our time this morning in that section, and we'll go a few more verses down to the end of the chapter. But Paul brings us to a place, he says, there's nothing you can do about the condition that you're in. There's nothing you can do about your sin but he says, there's something God has done. There's something God has done. There's nothing I can do to fix it, but there's something God has done. By the fact that he says, but now, but now. If you've been with us the last three weeks, this is the glorious transition that you've been waiting for. You said the last three weeks, Rob, I left here feeling sinner, feeling dirty, feeling filthy. But now, this is what we want, this is what we want to hear, but now. Notice he says, but now. It, it's it's. You and I, we can't do anything to make ourselves righteous before God, but he's done the work for us. But now, he says, the righteousness of God is revealed. Paul says God's righteousness is going to be revealed, and revealed means to make clear, to cause something to be fully known. He says, but now the righteousness of God is about to be revealed. And he says something important. He says God's righteousness has nothing to do with the law. It has nothing to do with the law. It's apart from the law. It's separate from the law. And although this is something new, Paul will go on to say that it was foretold, it was talked about, it was spoken of by the prophets. It's even foretold of by the law. Now I have to pause for a minute. When I say the law, I talk about the law. The chances are our minds go in all different kinds of places, depending on your background, depending on you know, how you grew up, depending on what you know. Some people might think, well, I don't, know anything. I don't even know what you're talking about. Well, let me just give you a couple meanings for the law. It can refer to the Jewish law, the 613 laws, Jewish law in the Old Testament. It can refer to that. It can refer to the Ten Commandments. It can refer to the, the, the new law that Jesus established in the New Testament, where he said in Luke chapter 10, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So it could refer to those specific we'll call them religious laws, but I also want to understand for us to apply this to our life, most of us didn't grow up as Orthodox Jew. 
Most of us didn't grow up where, where the law, we, we grew up underneath of the law as, as an Orthodox Jew would have been. Most of us didn't grow up that way. So what I, I think Paul's also referring to is what we'll call the principle of the law. The idea, the idea of rules and regulations, it's the, it's the principle of the law. It's, 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 what we could, it's what we would call kind of in the church today legalism. Where my, my relationship with God is based on what I do for God. The, the more I do for God, the better I am. The more, the more I, I, I follow the rules that I've set up for myself or that the church has set up or the pastor set up, the more I follow these rules, the better, the better person I am for God. The more God will like me. It's kind of like the idea of if you've got kids or you had kids, remember the little chore sheets you used to put up or the, where you used to make a little cheat on, a sheet on the refrigerator and have their name and have their date of the week and have all their little chores. You know, they take out the garbage and they have to do all these kinds of things. And if they, if they do it on that date, they get a check mark or a smiley face or a gold star. And, you know, at the end of the week, you look and see, what did I accomplish? And was I good at my chores or was I bad at my chores? And, and it, it would provide some sort of standard. The problem is that sometimes in Christianity, we approach the Lord this way. We've set up these laws, we've set up these rules, we've set up these regulations. Sometimes they come from a church where the church says, this is what you need to do to be a good Christian. Maybe they come from a pastor. Sometimes we put them on ourselves. We heard somebody say, well, I have to get up early to do devotions, so if I want to be a good Christian, I have to get up early. And, well, I didn't get up early this morning, so I don't get my gold star. Or I didn't do, I didn't do this, or I didn't do that. But, but we also make them positives. We also make them positive. Well, I attended church this morning, so there, I get my gold star. I attended church, I did what I was, oh look, I gave money this much, so I didn't get another gold star. And I get another gold star for doing this, and you know, oh, I brought my Bible to church, so I get another gold star, and if you didn't bring your Bible, no gold star for you. That's not the way the Lord works. It's, that's, that's, that's legalism, that's the law, that's what we're talking about, that's not how we approach God. You see, somehow, some way, I think that our Christianity has gotten twisted into the fact where we look at these rules that we've placed on ourselves, whether they come out of Scripture or not, and we say, all right, I can keep 50% of them. I can, I, can do, I can keep half of them, and I'll use God's grace to cover me on the other half. So half is on me, half is on him. Thanks, God. Thanks for your grace. Paul is not saying that at all. Paul is saying Jesus is our one big gold star that goes over top of every one of our rules. He goes over top, over top of every one of our regulations, everything. He is our gold star. God's righteousness is not offered to us to pick up the slack between, between where we fall short of God's law and his perfect standard. God's righteousness is offered to us completely. I need God's grace, all of it. Not, I don't want to keep part of it. And be, oh, I'm, I'm good here, Lord, but just cover me in this area. That's not what, he, that's not what he's talking about. That's not the salvation that he's talking about. It's apart from the law, apart from the list of the rules that you would place on yourself. It's apart. It's not a supplemental insurance policy to where you fall short. It doesn't work that way. It's not fire insurance just to keep you from burning in hell someday. It's not that it's something that we, we have to accept. It says, so the righteousness of God is apart from the law, but it was being witnessed. So Paul's saying, although this is a new thing, it's been foretold of, it's been witnessed, it's been told of by the law and the prophets. Well, how was it witnessed by the law? How did the law witness itself, Rob? What's Paul talking about here? How, how is that possible? The law is what brings knowledge of sin, what we just read. The law is what brings the knowledge of sin. The law is designated to show us that we can't keep it. You ever been on a diet? More than once means you didn't complete it, right? We can't even keep the rules that we set up for ourselves. You ever notice that? I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I'm going to make a New Year's resolution coming up. How many people are still keeping their New Year's resolutions? Oh, that's last year. No, it's this year. We're only in October. You've got two more months. 
I don't even remember what my New Year's resolutions were. You see, we don't keep those. The righteousness of God is witnessed by the law. How does that work, Rob? When God judges righteously. So the law brings us a failure. God judges those failures righteously. The problem is that although we can see God's righteousness when he judges or when he was to judge the law equally and righteously, the problem is the law doesn't save us. We might be able to witness or view God's righteousness as a righteous judge because of our failures of the law, but it's not what saves us. But Paul also tells us, hey, the prophets told us about this. Jeremiah talked about it. He said that, He said that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. Talked about the coming righteousness. Jeremiah chapter 23. Daniel talked about it in Daniel chapter 24. Fabulous verse. I I wish I had time to teach it this morning, but I don't. But in that verse, it says 70 weeks are determined for the people of the holy city to finish the transgressions, to make an end of the sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness. So the righteousness of God was talked about by the prophets. It was talked about by by the law itself. And then look at verse 21. It says, but now, we already did verse 21. Well, I'll start in 21. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. To who? To all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. The righteousness of God can be found in the law as the Lord judges every violator of the law righteously. God's righteousness can be seen as he judges mankind according to our sins, but that certainly doesn't solve our problem. That just has us judged. The law can show us our sins, it can show us God's righteousness, but it cannot save us from the sin. The rules that you place on your life, that we would place on ourselves to make us acceptable, make us Uh, make God love us more, make God like us more, they don't help you in salvation. They don't help you. They don't help you one bit. So how do we become justified and righteous before a holy and just God? He told us right there. Through faith in Jesus Christ. You see, we have this problem, Rob, how do we fix it through faith in Jesus Christ? Paul says this is the only way to be righteous before God. It's the only way. It's, it's, It's the way that God shows us his righteousness. Since we can't save ourselves, anybody save themselves from sin? Anybody stop sinning? One hand in the back. You want to? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, of course we can't. We can't save ourselves. It's through faith. It's through faith, and it's by faith. I think Paul's being very, very clear for a purpose because I want to make something clear. Sometimes in Christianity today, we've turned salvation into a work. We've turned salvation into something you have to do. So we've told people, listen, do you want to go to heaven or hell? That's a dumb question. I want to go to heaven. All right, well, then here's what you need to do to go to heaven. If you will pray this prayer, if you will do this thing, if you will, and we get in our minds sometimes, that if I will just do this one thing, I I, I went from a 12-step or a 600-step program to a one-step program. If I will do this one thing, then I will be justified. Then I will be righteous before God. That's not faith. You see, to be justified, to be righteous for God, it's not us doing something. It's us accepting what has already been done for us. We can't do it on our own. You can't make yourself righteous. We can, we can put step after step, rule after rule, and you'll still fall short of your very own rules. Oftentimes, we'll mount up rules on us the Lord never puts on us. 
The Lord's just saying, I want to walk with you in the cool of the day. I just want to spend time with you in my word and, and in prayer. And you go, well, I've got to do this, and I've got to do that, and I do this. And if I do all this, then I'll be a good Christian. You wear yourself out doing that kind of stuff. Let the Lord be the one that leads you. I can't tell you how to, I, I mean, here's, here, think of it this way. Your salvation isn't based on anything that you've done. The only thing that we do is accept what Christ has already done for us at the cross. We come to that agreement. We come to that place. Yes, I'm a sinner. What do I do about it? I'm going to accept what Christ has already done. It's the only way for us to be righteous. The faith that saves you and I is accepting what he has done for us. Just simply accepting it. Just simply believing it. Just simply, yes, I believe that he hung on a cross. I believe that he bled and he died. I believe that he took the wrath of God upon himself that was due to me for my sins. I believe that I should have been there. That's what I deserved. And I believe he did that for me. And I believe that he died and I died with him. And I believe that Paul's going to tell us that he rose and I rose with him. My identity becomes now in Christ. That's what salvation is. You see, I'm convinced that there's too many people walking around today that think they're saved and they're not. I think there's a lot of people walking around in our, in our towns, in our workplaces, in our culture, in our world that think they're saved because they went forward when they were a teenager and they prayed a prayer. Or they went forward to the church and somebody said, because you did this, congratulations, you're saved. You never have to do anything again. No, 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 no. That, that, that doesn't. If it's a condition of your heart where you truly believe and you truly accept what God has done for you, that is salvation. But if it's just simply a step in the process, if you've just simplified the process for somebody and said, well, just pray this prayer, then you'll be saved. That's not necessarily salvation. When I was about 10 years old, I went forward and I prayed the prayer. I was going to a Baptist school. We had an assembly. They went, my, all my friends went forward. I thought, well, I might as well go forward too. I didn't want to be the only one left in my seat. So I went forward and I prayed the prayer and they told me I was saved. And then I watched my life go farther and farther and farther. I left the school, went to public school. I went and my life got farther and farther and farther from the Lord on into high school, on into college. And if you would have asked me in that day, while I was attending college, if you said, are you a Christian? Yep, I'm a Christian. Why? I prayed a prayer. I said, I, I went forward. I said what I was supposed to do. And if you were to then take a look at my life and walk with me for a day, you'd say, you're not a Christian. There's nothing in your life. No, no, I prayed the prayer. The, the pastor told me, I'm good, I'm saved. I'm, I'm, there's nothing I've done. My life was far from it. You say, Rob, were you saved or weren't you saved? I'm glad I didn't have to find out. I'm glad that I didn't pass away during that time. Now I know I'm saved because of because my life, I accept what Christ did for me. I, I, I'm following Christ. I'm walking with him. He says, notice, for there is no difference. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew, if you're a Gentile. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter where you are. There's no difference. We all come to God the same way. It's through Jesus Christ. There is no difference. There's no difference in it, he says. There's, there's, it's the same way. We're all guilty. We're all justified before God by what he did. And in case that wasn't clear for you, Paul is going to tell you how to do it all over again. Look at verse 23. And I like this because he makes it real easy. He simplifies it. And I'm that kind of guy. Keep it simple. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For all have sinned. That word in the Greek, all, it means all. It means everyone, totality, whole, everyone. All people have sinned and fallen short. What's the word sin mean? What's it from? Where do we get it from? What's it mean? It means simply this, to miss the mark. To miss the mark. Any bow hunters out there? Anybody like to hunt? Anybody shoot a boat? Sin or sin is an archery term. 
It's an old English word that, it, that an archer would use as he would set up a target or he would have a target. He would have, when, he, when, the, when he would pull back the bow and he would let the arrow go and the arrow would hit off target, it would be, I sinned. You sinned. You missed the mark that you were aiming for. I had a mark. I had a goal. I, had, I, was, I was shooting for this and I fell short to the left or to the right, to the up, above it or below it. I sinned. I missed the mark. Isn't that a beautiful description of what sin is? As Christians, we strive for perfection. We strive to please the Lord. We strive for that holiness, but yet we find ourselves missing the mark, don't we? And I don't really have to convince you that you've sinned. I mean, I think we would all pretty well agree that, yeah, I don't have to persuade you that you've sinned and that you, you but, but let me ask you this. What about when it comes to the glory of God? What about falling short of the glory of God? What does that really mean? It means, did you give God the glory that he deserves? Did you give, do you give God the glory that he deserves in, this morning in worship? You know? Did your mind wander did, or did you give God the glory that he deserved? Did your mind go, well, I wonder why they don't have a worship team yet. I wonder, I wonder what the, or, or were you able to focus on the Lord? Or maybe there's some bad thoughts that came in there. Or maybe there's some other kind of thoughts that came in. Here you are in church. It's not just you, it's me too. Because we all fail to give God the glory that he deserves. Don't you see that we all fall short in our, we all miss the mark? We all fail to glorify God. I don't know that we're even capable of doing it, but we all fail and we all fall short of that. But look what he says in verse 24. I'll be starting 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We are justified, and what does the word justified mean? Justified never sinned, right? We are justified how are we justified? We are justified freely by his grace. What does the word freely mean? Freely. It means, it means this, without a cause. It means without a cause. It means you are justified without a cause. It means there's nothing in you worth justifying. It means there's nothing that you can do. There's nothing, there's nothing that God didn't look and go, well, he, you've got that special little, I'm going to justify. No, there's nothing in you that's worth justifying. It's without a cause. It's done freely and without a cause. Nothing in us deserves this justification. All of the reasons that we try to justify, justify ourselves are futile. All of the things we do, it, it's, it's futile for us. Stop trying to give God a reason to justify you because we're justified freely without a cause. Well, how are we justified? Look at verse 24. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood, through faith. You have been redeemed. If you have accepted what Christ has done for you on the cross, you have been redeemed. You have been redeemed. I like the word redeemed. I like it. Do we know what it means? Do we know what it means to be redeemed? I want to explain it to you. To Paul's readers, this idea, this concept of redemption, it was pretty clear for them. They knew exactly, because of what was going on culturally at that time, they knew exactly when Paul said redeemed what it meant. You see, in every Greek, in every Greek city, in every place, there stood, there stood an area called an agora. It's the place of redemption. It's the place where they would, they would not, not always, but it's the place where slaves would be bought and sold. It's where things would be bought and sold. It's where you would go to buy and sell something. And that's exactly what redeeming is. You're buying something. You're selling something. You're redeeming something. And as we study that word in the New Testament, there's several different words for redeemed. There's several different words. The first word, and it's not used here, is agorazo. It's when someone would go into the agora to purchase a slave. It's, it's like you, 
You know when you get credit card reward points and you decide, or you're saving up some kind of reward points, and, you know, you get your free coffee at Sheets, or you, whatever it is that you're, I'm going to redeem that now. You know, you go to the register, you want your free coffee? No, I'm going to save that tomorrow. I'll get it tomorrow. I'm going to redeem it the next day. That's what it means. You're just, you're, you're getting something that's, you're, you're getting something, you're trading something. The next word that we see, it's the act of purchasing something, but the idea is I'm going to keep it. It's going to become mine. I'm never going to get rid of it. I'm, it's like the idea, sometimes the, the farmers, they'd, go, they'd, they'd buy slaves for the season. They would harvest and they would take them back and they'd resell them to somebody else. And it was the idea that I'm going to get something, I'm going to buy something, I'm going to redeem something, but I'm going to give it back. I'm only going to use it for my purposes, then it'll be, I'll get rid of it again. That's the, that's the second word. You know, it's, that, that word is used four times and it's translated as redeem in the scriptures. And it's usually referred to redeeming the time. It's redeeming the time. It's, there's only a limited amount of it. But the word that's used here, the Greek word that's used here is so much more beautiful. It's uh, apolytrosis. And it's this, it's this idea, it's, it means this. It speaks of a man going into the agora to purchase a slave for the purpose of setting him totally and completely free. It speaks of a man going into the, to the, to the city place, going into the agora, I'm going to buy a slave, but I don't want to, I'm, I'm going to buy him just so I can set him free. Just so I can give him his freedom. Just so I can, he's no longer going to be under the bondage of slavery. I'm going to purchase him. I'm going to pay the price. I'm going to pay the ransom for him, whatever it is. And then I'm going to set him free. That's the word that's used right here for redeemed. It means that Jesus Christ purchased us, purchased us. He purchased us with the intent to set you free. Free from what, Rob? Free from sin free from sin, no longer under the bondage of sin. He purchased you at the price. We've been set free, no longer under the, under the bondage of that. And although salvation is free, we should know that it doesn't come without a cost. It's free to us, but it cost him greatly. Look at verse, uh, lost, I'll pick it up in verse 24. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth, this is God's work, as a propitiation by his blood through faith because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Mm-hmm. Notice that God is sending forth the propitiation. That's another funny word. What does that mean? What does propitiation mean? In its classical form, it was used as an act of appeasing the Greek gods by sacrifice. In other words, the sacrifice was offered up to the God to buy off the anger of the God. In other words, it means this. Jesus, by his death, that's what it says, that's what it means when it says by his blood, was a propitiation, a substitute, a ransom for you and I. For you and I. As he was judged in our place, the Father, God the Father, could demonstrate his righteousness in judgment against sin while sparing those who deserved the judgment. So as Christ was on the cross, crucified, the Lord was able to judge him in your place, thereby remaining righteous. Thereby remaining righteous. He was the substitute sacrifice. He was the propitiation for us. He was offered up to God on our behalf. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Well, what's that mean? These are the sins of the Old Testament saints who trusted in the coming Messiah. 
You know, in the Old Testament, Christ, they, 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 they covered their sins with an atonement, with a sacrifice, with a blood sacrifice. They covered them, waiting for the coming Messiah, believing on a coming Messiah. They were passed over for a time, but their sins also were paid for at the cross. When Christ died on the cross, their Old Testament sins were paid for as well. Why on earth would God do something like this? Look at verse 26. To demonstrate at the present time his righteousness. That he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith. Paul is circling around back to his argument. All the way back in chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. We said that's the thesis statement of this whole letter. Paul had said this. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first and also for the Gentile. And then in verse 17 it says, for in it... That's the gospel. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Paul says, I'm going to show you the righteousness of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now as we come to verse 26, God has given Jesus as a substitute for our sin to demonstrate his righteousness. You see, how is it possible that God could be the justifier and also be just at the same time? That's what, he's, that's what his goal, I want to be the justifier, but I also want to be just at the same time. Let me see if I can explain this to you. If God was to overlook my sin and not yours, would that be just? No. If we were to both get caught in a speed trap leaving church today, I would never speed. That'd be your fault. I was following you. <laughs> if we were both to get caught in a speed trap leaving church today and you got a ticket and I didn't, would that be just? No, of course it wouldn't be just. Well, what if God was just to overlook everybody's sin? Just, you know, I'm just going to, you know, total excuse on sin. I'm just going to, would that be just? What would happen when, what happens when somebody commits a crime and goes for, before a judge and the judge doesn't do anything? Would we say that was a just judgment? He gives them a slap on the wrist or something like that. That wouldn't be, that wouldn't be completely just. You see, a judge, when he makes a decision, takes into circumstances. He takes into all different things. What, what, what happened? What's going on in the person's life? How severe was it? But it's not just, it's not completely just. But what he's saying is God is going to be completely just, which means every punishment, everything that's given will be handed out, will be deserved. Nothing will be done. There will be be no mistake, no error. What if, in order for God to be both just and the justifier, it has to be in Jesus Christ. He has to be this. For God to be just, he must judge all sin equally, right? Right? Everything has to be judged the same. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how bad your sin is. It's all got to be judged the same for him to be just. But in order for him to be the justifier, he would need to be the one that justifies us. He would need to be the one that pays for our sin. He would need to pay the price, pay the consequence for our sin. It would be like the judge offering to go to jail for the person that he just convicted. And that's exactly what Jesus did. That's exactly what took place. That is what Jesus did when he stepped out of heaven and he took the wrath of God upon him for our sin. When that happened, our sins are forgiven because of what Jesus did on the cross. God becomes just because he's judging your sins as though they should be. They're deserving of death. He places them on Christ and now he becomes the justifier because he's the very one, because the Trinity, he's the very one that's paying the penalty for your sins. So Paul says, I just proved to you that God is not only just, he is a justifier. And in him paying the price for your sins, he shows us his righteousness. You see, in the law, he could be righteous in judging. 
but he couldn't, the law, he couldn't use the law to make us righteous because we all fell short. We all fall short of the law. But he says, in Christ, I'm going to step out of heaven. I'm going to step to earth. I'm going to live as a man. I'm going to take the, the wrath of God for all the sins of mankind. I'm going to take it. I'm going to put it on myself. And I'm going to be the one that pays the price for that. Now, it's important to notice, and this is really important, that God is only the justifier of the, look what it says there, of the one who has faith in Jesus. Not everybody. Only the ones that have faith in Jesus. Only the ones that accept this work that God has done. Only the one that says, yes, I believe this. I have faith. I understand this. Only, the, only those are the ones he's justified. God will be just to everyone, but he will, he will be the justifier to the ones who accept what Jesus did on the cross. All of your sins and my sins must be and will be paid for in one of two places. All the mistakes that you make will be paid for. All, that, that's God's justice. Every one of them will be paid for. Either they're paid for on the cross by Jesus Christ or they're going to be paid for in eternity in hell in the lake of fire. But the sins that we commit will be paid for. We get to choose. You and I get to make the choice. Where am I going to, do I want to put them on the Lord? Because that's what he wants, is us to be with him. Or am I going to, no, no, I don't believe any of that stuff. I'm, you just, no, no, Rob, I, you know, he doesn't want me. No, he does. Or do I want to take him upon myself? I'm going to roll the dice. Now I'm going to, yeah, I'll be, I'll be in hell with a party with my friends. I've heard that before. It'll be a hot one. That's for sure. That's not a chance that I would want to take. And look what Paul says in verse 27. He says, where's the boasting then? Where's the boasting Where's the pride? Where's the arrogance? It's excluded. By what law? Of what works? No, but by the law of faith. There's no boasting. We can't brag in how good we are. We can't. When we understand what Paul's saying, we realize, listen, we're all sinners, and there's not one really better than the other. One person's sin might be more obvious than the other, but it's just the fact that we're all, we all fall short of God's glory. Where's the boasting? There is none. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law it's not faith and the law it's faith apart from the law your works do not save you but they do prove to others that you're saved your works won't save you but they do prove to others what you're saved james would say show me your faith without works and i'll show you my faith by works you see, when we accept what Christ did to us, something happens in us and we begin working and serving him. We begin, we begin to be conformed into his image. There's a change that takes place, not overnight. Very rarely do the overnight changes last, I'm going to be honest with you. We've all met the person that's just, you know, chasing after the world and they, meet, they have the meet Jesus moment and a year or two later, oftentimes, they're back to the way they were. It didn't, we tried that, didn't work out for me, which means God didn't do what I wanted him to do. You see, God works in our life and he begins to change us very slowly, very meticulously. He works on certain areas at certain times. You know, people say, well, what do I do now that I accepted Christ? I don't do anything. Just spend time with God. Spend time with the Lord and let him show you what to do next. Because the truth is, I could look at any one of your lives and you could look back at mine and say, these are some things that you need to change. But until the Lord puts that on my heart to change it, it's not going to get changed. Or it's going to be changed for the wrong reasons. And if I was to tell you the same thing, until the Lord comes to you and says, I want you to stop or I want you to start doing this or stop doing that. That's when it matters all of a sudden because it's coming out of the word of God. It's the Lord speaking to you. You see, we can't clean ourselves up and we make the mistake of in Christianity, oh, now I'm a believer, now I gotta clean, what, I gotta quit listening to my music, I gotta quit doing this, and I gotta quit doing, no, no. Just start spending time with God and you watch what he'll tell, he'll tell you what to do next. 
He will lead you in that realm because he knows you better than I do, better than your neighbor does, better than your wife or your husband does. I know your wife wants to tell you what to do next. Follow God. She'll be happier that way if you do, guys. Follow the Lord. There's no boasting. We conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Verse 29, or is he the God of the Jews only? No, is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of course, the Gentiles also. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith, the uncircumcised through faith, it's by faith, do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. So is the law void and useless? Nope, just the opposite. Paul says the law has become established. And in Romans chapter 4, Paul's going to show us the law anticipated the coming gospel of this justification by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Now I want to go back to our doctor's office. I want to go back to where we started this at in the doctor's office. We were all sitting before the doctor and the doctor said, it's bad. It's bad news. Nothing I can do for you. Your condition is terminal. We said, doc, is there, isn't there anything I can do? Can I change my diet? Can I take a supplement? Maybe there's a new protein shake, something I got to be able to do. Alternative medicine. Can I try something? And doc says, nope. Sorry, there's nothing you can do. But there is one thing that already has been done. There is? What is it? There's a cure? There's something to be done? Yep, you have to accept what Christ did for you on the cross. Some people will come to that place and go, you know what? I accept what he did. I realize that I'm in this condition. Other people will go, I'm not really sick, doc. I feel fine. I'm out of here. I don't want anything to do with that. Other people will look and go, you know what, Lord, I am sick. My life has fallen apart. My life is a mess. My life is just a catastrophe. One thing after another, one bad choice after another. I need help. I'll, 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 I'll take that medicine. I'll, I'll take that. I'll believe what Christ did on the cross. And the doctor says, then you'll be healed. You'll be saved. But others, again, will just walk out in, in disbelief. The question that we have to answer for ourselves is what do we do with the gospel when it's presented to us? What do we do? When we study a scripture passage like this, it's glorious. It's, there's nothing I have to do except accept it, except believe it. That's, that's, just, that's just a wonderful and beautiful thing. I don't have to add to it. I don't have to clean myself up. I don't have to come to church. I, don't, I just have to believe that God, all of those things will happen, but you first have to accept what God's done for you. And that's where we're at this morning. We're going to take communion together this morning, and the guys can go ahead and start passing out the communion elements. And while they're doing, I want to talk to you just for a few more minutes. What a beautiful picture we have in, of, of what God has done for us here in Romans. It is so, so important. The Apostle Paul would tell us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he would say, listen, before you take communion, you need to examine yourself. You need to see where you're at before the Lord. And I would challenge you this morning that if you don't know the Lord, if you haven't accepted Christ, that just let the tray pass on by. You don't have to take it. But I would also challenge you this morning, even a greater challenge is let this be the day that you do accept what God has done for you. You see, there's no better place than to commune with him at the communion table. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you don't have to be a member of our church. You have to be a believer in Jesus Christ. That's the requirement. Am I, am I a follower? Am I a believer? Have I accepted what Christ has done for me on the cross? If that's you, take the elements, and we'll talk a little bit about it in a minute. But if you come to the place and you go, you know what, Rob, I'm the guy that I, or the lady that I haven't, I haven't accepted Christ, then I want you to bow before the Lord this morning. I want you to, when we, when we begin to pray together, I want you to close your eyes and bow your head, and I want you to tell the Lord that you're a sinner. And I want you to accept his forgiveness for your mistakes. And I want you to make the commitment to him that you're going to follow him for the rest of your life. You see, when you believe and you accept is when salvation comes in. And that's what we want to achieve this morning. So here's what we're going to do. 
As you get the elements, I want you to hold them into your hands. I want you to hold them in your hands. I want you to examine yourself. Go before the Lord on your own. Spend a little time in prayer. Then I'm going to come back up and we're going to talk a little bit about the communion, what the elements are, and we're going to partake of that together. So as the guys are finished passing them out, as you get them, hold them in your hands. We'll come back up. If you, then I want to say one other thing. If you've had a really bad week, maybe you've had a really bad several years, maybe it's been a bad decade, and you've been away from the Lord for a long time, and you think that you're not worthy to take communion, don't make that mistake. None of us are worthy to commune with him. We're only worthy because of what he's done for us. If you've been away from the Lord, but yes, I'm a believer, I've just been away, there's no better place for you to be than at the Lord's Supper, at the table of the Lord's Supper this morning. Because he wants to re- reinitiate, re- reinvigorate, re- breathe life into that relationship again. And don't let it pass you by because of guilt. You didn't put Jesus on the cross. God put him on the cross because he wanted a relationship with you. And he paid, our, paid the penalty for our sins, paid the price, took God's wrath upon him. So let's pray this morning. Father, what an amazing passage of scripture that you've laid before us. It's theologically deep, Lord. It goes farther than we can probably ever really even understand. And in the short time that we have this morning, Lord, as we scratched over these high points that were sinners and you saved us, and there's nothing in us worth saving, Lord, we, we look to you this morning for our salvation and nothing else, nobody else, not to our works, because even there we fall short in our own rules that we place upon ourselves. Lord, we look to you, and we look to the cross where you bore our sin and our shame, where you took the wrath of God that was meant for me, for us, for you. You took it upon yourself so that we wouldn't have to. Lord, our sins will be paid for because you're just. The question that we have to ask is where are they going to be paid for? Lord, I want mine paid for on the cross. I want to take what you have for me.